On New Year's Eve, Kelsey and me, I'm saying for a little while, maybe until like 9.30, we're certainly getting older, we watch some of the primetime networks ring in the new year. And I think one of the biggest surprises that stood out to me was people's high expectations about a better 2021. You see, the, the, a better 2021 was surprisingly the hope and expectation of many sitting in their homes this past New Year's Eve. And look, that could have been many of us sitting in this room today. For a brief couple hours, we might have felt a sense of new beginning as the year 2020 was coming to a close and 2020 was on the horizon. Yet, I want to ask you a question. As about three weeks have passed in 2021, do you still feel that sense of hope? Do you still feel that sense of new beginning? I'm guessing that probably most of us don't. The reason is a ton of new troubles have arisen and really the same difficulties that we were dealing with in 2020, they still haven't ended. There's still political turmoil, rampant racism, a pandemic that will not cease, disunity on a national scale, and financial instability. And I'm just talking about a national level. What if we bring it down to our congregation? Many of us are still unemployed. Teachers are still struggling trying to educate through Zoom. Many businesses are on the verge of collapsing. Some of us haven't seen our families in forever. We continue to wear masks all day. Most high school and colleges will stay virtual. And many of us continue to feel lonely, isolated, and scared. It was a difficult 2020, and it seems like it will still be that way in 2021 with so much uncertainty ahead. And I want to tell you all that in thinking about this, it really puts quite a distaste in my mouth. And I'm guessing for many of you that you feel that same distaste, a distaste for 2020 and a distaste for our present situation. But I want to tell you all that I'm not totally convinced that this distaste that we're feeling is really a bad thing. You see, I think that this distaste should be pointing us to the new heavens and the new earth where Christ will come for his bride. You see, I think this distaste screams out with her loudest voice that this world is not our home. And we long for Christ to come and make all things new. There is a distaste, but this distaste should be pointing us to that day. And so we're going to get a reminder of that day this morning in 2 Peter 1, 1 through 13. What a glorious text. And my prayer for us this morning is that in lifting up our eyes at the promises of God concerning the end of the world, we might be compelled to walk in holiness as we wait and hasten that glorious day. So Peter reminds these brothers and sisters about the coming of the Lord Jesus and warns them about heretics who deny that very day. And so I have three points this morning coming from the text. Peter wants to remind them of a divine providence, a divine providence, which we'll see in verses 3 through 7, a divine promise, which we'll see in verses 8 through 10, and a divine people, which we'll see in verses 11 through 13. 
a divine providence, a divine promise, and a divine people. So let's all stand together for the reading of God's word. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all those things are to be dissolved in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. You may be seated. So Peter, in 2 Peter, is most likely writing to believers in the providence of Asia. This letter has somewhat of, somewhat of a negative bent. You might call it a Debbie Downer due to the fact that Peter spends the majority of his time denouncing heretics and their false teaching. Yet, when we come to chapter 3... He's still denouncing these false heretics, but he moves to then address the believers in the community concerning a specific heretical teaching that has been floating around. Look with me at verse 1. Peter starts with, dear friends, or other translations might say, beloved. I want to pause here quickly to point out that Peter is instructing a people that he loves. You will hear Joshua use the term beloved in almost every sermon. This isn't his rhetorical strategy attempting to find a new and fresh way to address us. No, both Joshua and Peter intentionally use this term to express endearment and care for a congregation that they love. Peter loves them, so he instructs them about a specific heretical teaching that has crept into the community. And he does this through reminding them of truths that they've already heard. He says in verse 1, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder. You see, reminding presupposes that these people have already been instructed on this matter already. 
and they have. When we look at 2 Peter 1.16, we see this. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord. Peter, combining both the words power and coming here, signaled that he has indeed instructed them on the second coming of Christ. This community had been instructed on this matter, yet Peter willingly reminds them again to awaken them to wholesome thinking, a good pure and right understanding. And this wholesome thinking will give way to, as verse 2 reads, that they might recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through the apostles. Peter's end goal is simply this. If I'm going to sum up verses 1 through 2, that in the midst of these false teachings, his readers would remember the words of the prophets and the commands of the apostles. In remembering, that's their defense. In recalling God's word, that's how they fight off against the heretics. And I want to say this. To put it quite simply, we cannot recall what we do not know. And to take it a step further, if we cannot recall God's word, how will we be diligent to reject false teaching that comes our way? Well, we won't be able to. It would be like a homeowner not being able to recognize black mold. You see, you might just think the paint is eroding all the while. This spreading toxic bacteria is causing health problems and damages to the interior of his home. You see, false teaching teaching is very similar to that. It can creep in, and as time goes on, we don't even realize that it's distorting our good and right theological beliefs. So let's be diligent as a congregation to know and recall God's word so that we don't find ourselves sitting in a house of mold. So after Peter calls his readers to be reminded of God's word as an adequate defense against these heretics, he then goes on to identify these heretics and their denial of future judgment. That brings us to our very first point this morning, a divine providence. Look with me at verses 3 through 4. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, Where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. So Peter begins his lengthy defense of Christ's second coming by warning these readers of heretics and the particular heresy that is swarming around. He starts off by cautioning them that the last days, that in the last days, scoffers will come. It doesn't say they might come. It doesn't say that they could come. It says they will come. And so I think we can pause right here and ask the question, when are the last days? Is Peter referring to in a, like a, a future event here? Well, that's a great question. The Bible frequently speaks about the last days as a time between Christ's first coming, his life, death, and resurrection and ascension, and his second coming. So Peter, writing at this time, is writing in the last days. We, sitting here on the Lord's Day, are sitting here in the last days. So Peter isn't pointing to a future period at the end of history. No, this prophecy is being fulfilled now. Their scoffing is actually a sure sign that they were living in the last days. 
And so now we need to stop and ask ourselves, well, who are these scoffers? Well, scoffers or mockers are people who belittle and trample God's word. Rather than submitting to God and his word, these false teachers scoff at it by twisting and turning the Bible to fit their own evil desires. You see, don't miss this. Their unbelief gives rise to their unorthodoxy. Their questioning about the second coming of Christ isn't this plea for evidence. It's not this innocent appeal saying, man, I just want to know more information. No, it's not that at all. It's an attempt to usurp God's authority by sowing doubt into the congregation. And so Peter refutes their argument in verse, he starts in verse 4, but first he puts their teaching in his own words. He says this, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. This expression, where is, indicates to us an attitude of skepticism. What is their skepticism towards? God's promise concerning the end, both the coming and judgment of Christ. You see, this phrase, ever since our ancestors fell asleep, is referring to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their skepticism arises from their belief that God hasn't interacted with his creation in a very long time. And so these false teachers are attempting to weave in uncertainty by saying, look at history. God hasn't intervened in creation. What makes you think that he'll appear in judgment now? They were denying his divine providence, which is his preserving, operating, directing, and governing over, his, over all his creation. Basically, his control and interaction with his universe. They had this very naturalistic outlook. No change, no divine providence that will give way to no judgment. It's like they were saying, God has promised this, but our evidence seems to prove otherwise. Now, I want to really think about this. A mere finite created being is looking up at the holy infinite, eternal God in saying, you've been hands-off with your creation since the beginning, and you still will be hands-off, meaning there will be no judgment. I think we can all say that this is the height of arrogance to um, weave doubt in the congregation, to, um, to, to, to lay these accusations on God and his word. And so Peter starts his rebuttal by saying, they deliberately forget this. He isn't saying, oh, you're just absent-minded. No, it's stronger language than that. He's saying, you're suppressing the truth. Well, what are they willfully forgetting? Well, they're forgetting, again, God's divine providence. And to give a brief summary of verses 5 through 7, Peter is saying this. Reflecting on God's word, Peter demonstrates that God has intervened in his creation by both creating the world and destroying the world. Thus, he concludes that God will come again in judgment. So let's glance at each of these verses and how they contribute to the argument. Look with me at verse 5. Peter says, by the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Well, what is Peter saying here? 
Well, Peter is reminding this community that God has intervened through his word in creating the world. You see, creation itself was a divine act of God. Genesis 1 over and over repeats the phrase, then God said. Psalm 33, 6 repeats the same truth by saying the universe was formed at God's command. It's a pretty obvious point, but their logic doesn't stand. The very universe the false teachers are talking about hasn't always existed. God intervened to bring it about. And the phrase from water and through water is pretty heavily debated, though. So he says this. He says um, that long ago the earth was brought about from water and through water. You see, I think what Peter is saying here, I think he's emphasizing the use of water in creation to show how the earth was chaotic and uninhabitable until the Lord separated the waters and then brought about the earth from the waters. So there was chaos, and then God intervened. But then we look at the next verse to see how he will bring chaos back with those very waters. That brings us to verse 6. Through these, the world at that time perished when it was flooded. I mean, if we think about it for a second, I feel like this is a mic drop defense of God's providence. It's like they're denying future judgment, and Peter looks at him and says, Bro, what are you doing? Look back. God has already judged the world once through the flood. He's already intervened through his world. At that time, the world perished. Now, Peter isn't saying that the future judgment is going to be exactly like this, but his point stands that this previous judgment in the days of Noah certainly anticipates the future judgment. Now we come to our climactic conclusion where Peter says that this present world will be judged not by water, but by fire. And you might be wondering, well, why fire? Well, God cannot judge the world with water. You might be thinking, why? Well, if we remember back to Genesis 9, he promised that he would never again destroy the world with water. And so let's bring, um, let's, let's look at verse 7. Peter says this. He says, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Peter's point is, there should be no uncertainty about God's judgment of the wicked. Look at God's divine providence in the world. He has done it, and he will do it again. Peter's alluding to the fact that God's divine providence is both efficacious and moving towards a desired end. And I'll say that again. God's divine providence is both efficacious and moving towards a desired end. It's efficacious in that it always accomplishes its purpose. Creatures resist his plans, but they will never prevail. What God promises will happen. And it's moving towards a desired end or a specific purpose, like, like a prisoner who is awaiting his death sentence. All his days are moving towards that day of execution, like all our days are moving towards this day of judgment. It will happen, and we are moving towards that day moment by moment. A bishop of Sardis living in the second century said, there was a flood of water, there will be a flood of fire, and the earth will be burned up together with its mountains. Brothers, remember God's divine providence and know for certain that he will come in judgment. 
And I want to say, for those of you in here that identify as a non-Christian, that you come in here and say, I'm not a Christian. As I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about, you know, words like destruction of the ungodly, I think about how this talk of judgment sounds to you. You might even be sitting there wondering, what's the real difference between the ungodly and Christians? You see, I actually experience Christians all the time sinning. That's what you might be thinking. What's actually the real difference? And I would tell you, the difference is certainly not one is sinless and the other is sinful. That's not the difference at all. You might not understand this, but the difference between the ungodly and the Christian is repentance and faith in Jesus you see, the good news, the good news while we're all gathered here this morning is that Jesus lived the life that we could not live. We are all sinful. We all fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus walked before the Lord perfectly, and he lived the life we could not live, and he died the death that we deserve. Friends, the good news is that you do not have to experience that judgment because Jesus Christ already has. On the cross of Christ, he took the curse on himself. The curse that we were supposed to get, Jesus took that curse. And if you repent and believe, you will not have to experience that day, but you will be with Jesus for all of eternity. I would encourage you to speak to other members after the service and talk further about the gospel. So Peter has just debunked the deception of the false teachers by reminding the congregation to remember God's divine providence. He will come, and he will come in judgment. Next, Peter was concerned that the congregation might now be confused about Christ's second coming. So he gives them this second type of argument of his coming, reminding them of his divine promise. And that brings us to our next point, a divine promise. So think about this with me for a second. You're sitting in one of these churches in the providence of Asia. Teachers in your community have been saying, where is his coming that he promised? He hasn't come now. He isn't here. And he will not come. If you were to hear that over and over, you very well may start to develop a sense of doubt. You very well may start to develop this sense of uncertainty. Questions might arise like, why is he delaying? Did I understand his promises correctly? Do you see how easy it would be to start to go down this road? And Peter, fearing this reality, reminds his brothers and sisters of God's divine promise. There is a reason God has delayed his coming, but remember, he will come. So let's look at verse 8 of Peter's pastoral defense, his second argument of the second coming of Christ. Peter says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. You see, Peter redirects um, his gaze to these faithful Christians by using the phrase he did in verse 1, dear friends. And he goes on to exhort them not to forget an essential truth about God that they might be liable to forget. What truth is that? The eternality of God. 
So this is what Peter says. He says, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Peter, in saying this, is alluding to Psalm 94, where the psalmist says, for in your sight, a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by like a few hours of the night. So I think we should pause right here just for a second, maybe even take a deep breath and ask, is Peter and the psalmist saying that literally God's thousand years are like a day? Is that what he's saying? Literally a thousand years are like a day? I don't think so. You see, you see, this text is saying that a thousand years is, that one day is like a thousand years. You see, God's divine eternity means that God does not experience time like we do. Therefore, he has no future or past. We experience this moment-by-moment succession. Nevertheless, God doesn't, for he is outside of time. So what's Peter's purpose in saying this? Why does he allude to God's eternal character? Well, Peter is saying, remember who God is. As time passes, we get impatient, yet our God never does, for he is not bound by time. As time passes, things come up that tend to delay our plans, yet God's plans will never be delayed, for he is outside of time, exalted above all limitations. Pretty easy to comprehend, right? No, I'm kidding. It's not easy to comprehend at all. Nonetheless, I think Peter's rock-solid argument should bring great comfort to the Christian of that time and us now. They shouldn't be worried of the so-called delay of his coming, and we should not be either. For our God is not diminished by time. He cannot decline or frail. And what seems long to us is like a snap of the finger for him. And Peter goes on to explain why the fulfillment of God's promises might seem like a delay. He says in verse 9, The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God's promise to send his son is certain, yet it might seem delayed because God is patient with his people. Here again, Peter reminds the congregation of God's character, not his eternal character, but his merciful character. The scoffers were pointing at God, accusing him of sleeping on the job. Yet Peter informs the congregation that God hasn't come back because of his merciful forbearance. He doesn't want any of his people to perish, but all to come to repentance. Oh, our God is not slow as some might think. Our God is compassionate, merciful, and patient, waiting, as Romans 11.25 says, that the full number of the Gentiles will come to repentance before the end will come. Jesus, as we read in John 10, says that none of his sheep will not come to him. All who hear his voice will come to him. Oh, brothers and sisters, is this not great news that Jesus did not come back, let's say, five 10, 15, or 20 years ago? 
I know if Jesus would have come back 10 years ago, I would not be with him in heaven, and I know many of you wouldn't be either. Yet our God endures the wickedness of this world, giving time for all of his people to repent. Amen. Praise God for his divine forbearance. And Peter wants his congregation to lift up their eyes to our long-suffering God that this might swallow every doubt and uncertainty about his coming. Nevertheless, Peter's argument moves to assertion in verse 10 when he states, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. So the day of the Lord is this vast theme in our Old and New Testaments. It's the same it's the same day as the day of judgment. It's a day where Jesus will not come back to die, but to reign. And Peter says this day will come. This day is more certain than our next breath of air because God has promised it. You hear people say all the time that nothing is a sure bet. Brothers and sisters, this is a sure bet for he will come. And Jesus says that he'll come like a thief. And just this thief reference means that he'll come in a day or an hour when nobody knows. And so what will that day bring? Well, Peter says this. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. I want to pause and say that this verse does bring a lot of challenges. Let's just put that on the table right now. This verse is hard to interpret. Many people have different views concerning the fate of the earth when Jesus comes. Will it be restored or destroyed, giving away to a new earth? Really, many people point to the latter as they look at this passage. And this is why. I mean, we can look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, The heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. This verse that we're in right now speaks about elements that will burn and be dissolved. I think when he's talking about elements, he's talking about the sun, the moon, and the stars. Well, then we, then we go to verse 11 when he says, since all these things are going to be dissolved. And then finally, verse 12, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements melt with heat. And so at least on the surface, if we're just looking at these passages, I think it seems like Peter is leaning more towards an annihilationism that everything is going to be destroyed. Yet when we glance at other New Testament passages like Romans 8 that says creation waits for eager longing for Christ's return, or even Romans 8 also says that creation will be set free from bondage, I think the Bible presents more of a picture of glorification rather than annihilation, restoration rather than complete ruin. Nevertheless, many of you guys might be wondering, well, what in the world do we do with this language in 2 Peter 3? How do we interpret this? Well, let's just glance at verse 6 because I think this might be helpful. You see, even in verse 6, the text reads that the world at that time perished with the flood, but we know that it wasn't completely destroyed. So I think I lean towards Peter's language describing a purification and, or renovation rather than a complete annihilation. But annihilation could have what, been what Peter was talking about. This is still pretty heavily debated. 
So after we pause, think about that. What does that mean for us in this room today? Well, first, I think this should caution our hearts towards the possessions that we own. Whether there's an annihilation or a purge, our stuff is not coming with us. So we need to ask ourselves, are we trusting in what we can touch and possess? Are we dependent on the things that we own? Henry Ford once said, money doesn't change a man, it simply unmasks them. You see, you can have very little, but your heart still have a proclivity towards materialism. We can't take our stuff with us. Every object that we own will be left behind. But I want to confess to you, even saying this, even saying what I know, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to find my contentment in the things that I own. I struggle with this greatly. And I know many of you in this room, y'all might be sitting in the exact same seat. You might struggle with it too. It's kind of like a drug. It creates temporary happiness, but that happiness never lasts. We might get new stuff, and for a moment we might feel a sense of importance, security, or happiness, but that happiness is always fleeting. It's fleeting because true contentment will never come in the things that we own. True contentment comes when we set our affections on Jesus and his cross. I pray that we would be reminded of this text, that our stuff is never going to come with us. But Matthew 6 does say that when we store up eternal treasures, those will remain. So lastly, I want to point to verse 10 in this section. Verse 10 says this, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed, or the NIV says laid bare, or the ESV says exposed. This last word, disclosed or laid bare or exposed, is heavily debated. Many commentators um, just try to, try to figure out what this word is. Yet, in my opinion, I think disclosed, laid bare, or exposed is the right word. I think Peter is saying that the earth and the works on it will be laid bare or exposed before God on the day of the Lord. Divine judgment will necessarily involve every single action disclosed before God, like a district attorney laying down all the true evidence before the jury. I say this because we live in a time where it's hard to determine real versus fake news. It's hard to know where an accusation is true or false. Or even we might know the facts, but justice was not served on this side of heaven. Brothers and sisters know that everything, whether done in public, secret, or in our hearts, will be laid bare before God. There are, not, there are not enough paper shredders in all the world to keep information from leaking to God. They will be disclosed. Everything will. And although we long for it now, we certainly wait and know that it's coming at the coming of Christ. And so Peter's airtight argument about God's divine prominence and promise of God must have brought great comfort and certainty towards Christ's second coming. However, he does not land the plane yet. He wants to instruct these Christians in light of this certainty to walk in holiness and godliness as they wait and hasten that glorious day. So we come to our very final point, point number three, a divine people. Look with me at verses 11 through 12. 
since all these things are be dissolved in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because that day the heavens will be dissolved with fire and elements will melt with heat. You see, a look at eschatology, a look at the end times, always comes back to our ethics. You see, all throughout the Bible, like here, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Corinthians 15, the purpose of peering at the end isn't to satisfy our curiosity or make us retreat on our couches. No, looking at the end should always motivate us to live holy lives in the here and the now. A right understanding of the end changes the way that we live. And Peter picks up on this when he says the words, it's clear what sort of people you should be. He's saying like, man, this is obvious. Looking at the end, it's obvious what sort of people we should be. Remember, the heretics were teaching a delay in judgment as an excuse for their evil behavior. And Peter has completely discredited all of that teaching, and he lands the plane with charges to live holy, godly lives. I want to say and point out that Peter isn't giving them this option. He's not saying like, it's clear what sort of people you should be, but it's like, you don't have to do this. No, this is an imperative. He's saying, you must do this. We read in Hebrews 12, the writer says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. It's necessary that our lives be marked by holiness and godliness because without it, no one will see the Lord. We are called to be a divine people. And I want to remind us that Christ's local churches are actually supposed to be real pictures of heaven. Now, they might be dim pictures, yet they're still pictures. One can actually look at the local church and see a culture of holiness, godliness, righteousness, meekness, peace, mercy, and love. And this is the culture of heaven. And so when the watching world asks the question, what is heaven like, we should be able to point them to our local church. And the point that I want to make is for us, NBC, is that a, peer, a, a clearer picture of heaven will make our evangelism easier. But a dimmer picture will ultimately make it hard to tell the world about our glorious Savior. Again, our corporate witness, the way we walk, the way we live out this holiness and godliness is showing the world a picture of who Jesus is and the new heavens and the new earth. And as I was thinking about it this week, I wonder if we're giving Midtown a clear picture of the gospel, a clear picture of the new heavens and the new earth. I think we are. But I think Peter is calling us right here to strive to do it more. Strive to continue that the watching world might be stopped in their tracks, unable to look away at this glorious picture of heaven, which will ultimately make our evangelism a lot easier. Nevertheless, like I said earlier, it is a dim picture because we all still sin, which is why our ultimate hope is in Christ's coming. At his coming, all things will be made new, which is why we long for that day. And Peter says in verse 12, he says this very fact. He says, as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. You see, it's like we have one eye on earth walking in the way of holiness that pleases the Lord, and our other eye is on the Lord and His glory, which is motivating the way we walk in the here and now. 
We have one eye on heaven motivating us as we live here. I think you all probably remember your first big purchase after you moved from college to a full-time job. It's like you didn't have to pay for college things. You might have had a little more money in your pocket, so you were able to splurge on something you really wanted. My first purchase that I ever made was a, pair, was a set of golf clubs. It was something that I really wanted. I got some money in my pocket, and I purchased it. And I remember the day that the golf clubs were going to arrive. The UPS little, um, little tracking deal said it was supposed to arrive between 3 and 7 p.m., I promise you that I waited at the door that entire time. I was like peering around the corner to see if he was going to come. I was like checking the weather to make sure this driver was going to get to my house safe. And even like looking at the UPS tracking, which it never updated and never changed, but I still looked at it every second of that time. It's kind of funny to think about because when he got there, it's like I think I might have greeted him with the holy kiss. It was like he was coming. I was like, oh, come here. I'm so thankful to see you. It was a glorious return, and I was so excited for him to come to my front door. Yet when I think about that, I think to myself, am I longing for Jesus' return like I long for that UPS driver to come bring me a set of golf clubs? She, Jesus is so much greater than this UPS driver, and his return is going to usher in so many more greater gifts than a set of golf clubs. Yet, why do I not long for his coming as I should? Well, I think it's simply this, that that one eye that should be locked on Jesus' return reverts back to the here and now, and I don't find myself thinking about that day. And I'm calling us NBC because the text is calling us to be a people that never stops looking, never stops talking, and never stops eagerly waiting for that day. And I want to add that it's not only waiting, but it's also an act of hastening or speeding its coming. There's a sense where our godly lives actually advance, hasten, or speed its arrival. Which is pretty incredible to think about because the, the text says a divine people can hasten its coming. I think we can add evangelism alongside of holy living as we read in Matthew 24, 24, Jesus' words that say, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's kind of hard to understand this, as there has been hard parts in all of this text. Um, but we must both affirm both God's sovereignty and bringing about this day at a specific time and our responsibility to evangelize and live godly lives that hasten his coming. All right, so now we can take another deep breath, our last deep breath, because we're at the very last verse, verse 13. And Peter lands a plane with a reminder of the glorious promise of the new heavens and the new earth. We've heard a lot about destruction language, language about the fate of unbelievers, but we haven't heard much about the believer's reality on that day. Peter doesn't leave the conversation without this magnificent reminder. He says this, he says, based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. How are we going to be in a place where righteousness dwells? Do we not sit and think about that? It's like, how will God's people be in a place where our righteous God dwells? 
It's not because of our righteousness. No, it's because the righteousness of Christ. Because his life and his death and that being imputing to us, we will see Christ one day and his righteousness will become ours. And at that moment, we'll, we, we will be ushered into the righteous one and we will see him face to face as he is. Revelation 21 gives us this glorious picture of this in verses 4 through 5. Three through four. John says this. He says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with you with his humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, crying, grief, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. What John is saying here is no sin, no injustice, no tears, no lies, no suffering, no disease, no death, for all of it will pass away. And we will finally be where God himself dwells. We will finally be in his presence, worshiping him fully for who he is, and nothing will hinder us. Yeah, and I want to say this, because sometimes when we talk about heaven, we just talk about worshiping God in his presence. And I want to say that will happen. We will worship him perfectly, yet we will also enjoy his good gifts. So we're going to be able to worship him fully and enjoy his gifts. They're not going to be competing. No, as we worship him fully and enjoying his gifts, everything is going to reverberate back to his praise. So in this place where righteousness dwells, there's going to be great people, great places, great food, great clothing, cities, and gates. It's the perfect place where the spiritual and the material joys come together. A place where we will enjoy both God's good gifts and, again, his presence. What a glorious place where a divine people will be enjoying God forever. I think I can say on behalf of all of us, Lord Jesus, come. So to conclude this, I feel like tough but also glorious text. What is our hope and expectation for 2021? I'm not saying it's a bad thing to want a better 2021. Yet if it doesn't happen, it should not lead us into despair because our ultimate hope is based on the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Our ultimate hope is Christ's second coming. And so I pray for us this year that we would set our hope, our ultimate hope on that day. Let us pray. Holy Father, as we have seen... Um, just your goodness and how you are delaying your coming, waiting for all your people to repent and believe. And as we're gathered here together, worshiping you, but anticipating that day when you come, God, we all pray that you would come. Come soon, Lord Jesus, please come. In Christ's name, amen.